your first time this morning, or maybe it's your second or third time, but you've not um, been here too many times. We want to welcome you and thank you for being our guest this morning. And I would invite you, if you would, to help us out by filling out our guest card. And it's actually a QR code. It is printed on the card in front of you in the pew. And uh, it looks like the one that should be on the screen behind me. There it is. And if you could take some time to fill that out for us, there's just a couple of questions that you can tell us um, a little bit about yourself, who you are, and then some contact information so we can get back with you and answer any questions that you may have um, about our ministry here at Grace. I also want to just take a brief moment. Um, as we have mentioned a couple of times already, we are going to be observing the Lord's Supper this morning. And um, here at Grace, we want you to know that if you are a guest here, this is your first time with us, and you are a believer in Christ, that there has come a time in your life that you have put your faith in Christ alone for salvation, and you are living obediently to Scripture, as not perfectly, but you are living in obedience to God and His Word, uh, we would invite you with the observance of the Lord's Supper. And once again, if you did not pick up um, some of the um, um, elements in the back, you can slip out very quickly and grab that um, at, at just a moment. You can certainly welcome to do that. Um, as has already also been mentioned the last uh, couple of times, the last few weeks we have been laying the groundwork for what we have historically called uh, Vision Sunday, and that always falls within the month of January. And as I wrestle through the idea of the Vision Sunday and that idea, that concept, it's not bad or wrong, um, but each year we do, a, we do have a family meeting, a church meeting in which we vote in deacons and that sort of thing. But really talking about what we are as a ministry, who we are as a ministry, is something that really can't be accomplished with, with one sermon or one Sunday. And so we have been taking really the, the entire month of January and beginning to talk about who are we as a ministry. And we have been each week talking about our purpose statement, and it describes for us why this ministry exists. What is our, what is our purpose? And we say it this way, Grace Baptist Church exists to make and mature disciples for the glory of God. And we have taken the last two weeks to talk about the beginning part of that statement is that we exist to make disciples. That means to see people come to saving faith in Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. Today, we're going to talk about the next part of that statement is that we exist as a ministry to not only see people come to Christ and saving faith in Christ, but we want to see people maturing in their faith. You could say it this way, maturing disciples, we are not primarily concerned with accumulating converts or getting people to pray an empty prayer. We are far more concerned about seeing people genuinely come to a saving knowledge of Christ and then grow and mature in their faith and in their understanding of who God is and what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. In fact, when you think about Matthew chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples this. He said, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like an empty prayer to me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This isn't repeating words. This is living a life of obedience. I've been wrestling with this statement that I came across in my reading preparing for the month of January and February is this statement of what you win people with is what you win them to. We are not interested, as Pastor Wes has already commented on, in being an attractional ministry about entertaining people and bringing in big crowds to see the big show. Now, don't misunderstand, by the way. I was thinking about that. Tomorrow morning, every Monday as a staff, we meet and we go through the service and we try to understand how we can improve. We do not sit around and say, man, how can we bore them to tears next week? That is not our goal. In fact, I would suggest that if worship is boring, you are in a sense calling God himself boring. He has called his people to worship together to be a part of the body of Christ. So we're not interested in being an attractional ministry. We want to be an adoration-based ministry. 
Our goal was to say this, here is God. Isn't he wonderful? Rather than leaving our services each week and saying, wow, what a great service. I'd rather we leave and say, what a wonderful Savior. Our call is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. To make disciples, yes, and to mature disciples for what purpose? For his glory, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. This morning, we are actually going to study together two verses. And in order to prepare for those two verses, we're going to read a bunch of them leading up to those two verses. So I would invite you to find in your copy of Scripture the book of 2 Timothy, and I would invite you to find chapter 3. And we are going to be looking at the last two verses of this chapter. And what I want to do by reading these verses is to make sure that we understand the greater context in which these two verses are given. Probably many of you, most of you, have memorized the last two verses of this chapter, or you have at least heard them multiple times in your life because they are very essential. Certainly all Scripture is essential, but they are very important to understanding the nature of Scripture. But I want to read this entire chapter... And I'm going to begin reading in verse number one. Peter, excuse me, Paul, by the Paul, by the way, is writing to his um, son in the faith, Timothy, who was a pastor, and he's writing to him and giving him personal instruction. This is a very personal letter as he is writing to this young pastor. So notice verse one. But understand this: that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, uh, conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, power avoid such people. Now, I know what your mind just did. I can read your mind. We live in a terrible age, pastor. I know. It's just horrible how people live today. People were horrible in Paul and Timothy's day, too, by the way. There truly is nothing new under the sun. But here's what I want you to do. When you read through that list, I won't read back through it, but when you read through that list, don't read the people out there. Read you. Because this is who you are by nature. This is who I am by nature. We are selfish. We are unappeasable. We're difficult. We're slanderous at times. We lack self-control at times. We are lovers of pleasure more than we love God. Be honest with yourself this morning, all of us. This doesn't describe the world out there. Yes, of course, it does because they're sinners in need of a Savior. But it describes us too. He says, avoid such people. So we should avoid each other as the church. And that's not what he's saying. But those that have this life-dominating issue of sinfulness and rejection of truth, that's who Paul is talking about. Verse 6, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with their sins and led astray by various passions. Listen to verse 7. Always learning... And never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that true of many in our culture today? Always learning, but the more they learn, the more evasive that truth becomes. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so the, these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in their mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, believer, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet them all the Lord, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will enjoy 
roses and wonderful parties with balloons and birthday cake all the time. That's what the health and wealth gospel tells you. Believe this and you're going to live a life of blessing, material blessing and ease and comfort. It's very biblical to understand that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. We don't sign up for that readily. But Paul is telling Timothy that you better understand that if you take in his culture, in our culture, it doesn't matter which culture you're standing for truth in, you are going to face opposition. You are going to face trial and trouble because of your faith. Why? Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then the two verses we want to study together this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the Lord's word for us this morning, and let's pray together before we try to understand it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for having the opportunity to study it together this morning. I pray today that as we look into this These couple of verses, Lord, that we wouldn't just gather more information, but rather we would come to an understanding of the importance that Scripture has in our life. God, may this be a time in which we are assessing our own hearts, our own desires, our own selfish desires that haunt each and every one of us. And may we be reminded this morning of the the truth that we have, that we have been given in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can tell you exactly where my love for books began. I probably have told you this before, but I went, I grew up going through public school and I can remember when I got into the fourth grade, I had a teacher by the name of Mr. Ward. He was by my memory, the first male teacher that I had ever had coming up through elementary school. And he was just really cool. He was kind of a tough guy, very kind of a disciplinarian kind of a guy. But here's what I remember about Mr. Ward. He used to read to us. And I didn't grow up being read to. I didn't didn't really have that experience. And I can remember him reading Huckleberry Finn and these different things that he would read to us, Tom Sawyer and that sort of thing. And I remember just loving the idea of reading. But here was the problem. I couldn't read. I could read a few words, but I couldn't read a paragraph. I couldn't read a book and tell you what I just read. I couldn't do it. I can't tell you how many reading sheets for Mr. Ward I was kept in off the playground because I had to redo it because I couldn't read and comprehend. Around that time, my dad would drop me off from my little elementary school on his way to to work, and we had to go into the cafeteria. It was kind of the holding tank for the kids that didn't ride the bus to elementary school. And I got to know the librarian. Her name was Mrs. Williams. And Mrs. Williams said to me one day, she said, Jay, would you have any interest in working in the library before school? She said, I just need somebody to put books back on the shelf and I'll show you how to do it. We had this thing called a card catalog. It was really cool. You can Google it later if you don't know what that is. And I remember going to the library, it was better than hanging out with my friends eating toasted cheese sandwiches or whatever they gave us in the morning, which was kind of weird. But I would go to the library, and I remember, okay, this is strange, but I would just like to hold the books and look at them and smell the paper. I still do that. It's weird, I know, but it's good. And the spines and how the books were put together and how the little, you know, the plastic covering libraries put over it so the covers are okay. Like, that just fascinated me. But I couldn't read. Well, and yet... God has given to us a book. And it is a book unlike any other book in the library. 
It's not written merely by a human writer for the purpose of monetary gain. It is a book that has been written by God himself through the working of men and through, we'll talk about this in a moment, the inspiration of men that they then took the very word of God and they put it into writing so that you and I can read and understand and apply and live in accordance to what God has instructed us to do and how we are to live. To this day, I still make it a practice. I do this often in the early mornings. I go to the gym each day, and usually when I'm driving to the gym and back home, I listen to the Bible on, on recording. We used to listen to them on tape back in the good old days. And yet the Bible, we understand, it's not a science book. It's not a psychology book. It's not a math book. It's not a history book. There's history in it, certainly. It's not a political science book. It is a divine book. It is given to us by our creator so that we can know him personally. Now we have to understand that the purpose of the Bible is not to answer every question that you have ever thought up in your life. That is why Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do the works or the words of this law. My challenge for us this morning, as it was for Paul to Timothy when he wrote to this young man in ministry, that he was pointing out the realities of the world in which Paul lived in. We know those realities. We taste them, we touch them, we experience them, we see them on the news. We understand that our culture, you could fill in the blank of the first several verses of this chapter of 2 Timothy 3 and understand, yes, that's how the world is. How are we going to reach them? Put on a big show every week with lights and clowns and ponies and puppies. Paul says, actually, to Timothy in chapter 4, you know what you're going to do, Timothy? In the midst of this wicked, horrible generation, you're going to preach the Word of God. Because it is Scripture that changes hearts and changes lives. So let's look at three truths about Scripture this morning. You may be visiting today, or maybe you're new to Christianity, and you may be sitting there saying, that's a little crazy. What are you talking about? Inspired by God. What does that, what does that mean? Well, notice, let's look at these couple of verses in more detail. Paul says to Timothy, all of Scripture is inspired, or I'm reading from the ESV this morning, that it is breathed out by God. In other words, that God has revealed His truth to us through His written Word. And that for the Christian to read this book and to understand this book is to then understand that it originated with God himself and that he, we'll look at this verse in just a little bit, but that God worked through human beings, through men, in order to write down and to record scripture. All scripture, all of it is given to us by inspiration of God. There's some other verses for you just to think about and the importance of scripture. Scripture was always, has been from the foundation of God's people, there has been revealed truth given to them. And us as New Testament believers understand the importance of not just what we call the Old Testament, but the New Testament. And let me share a couple of verses with you to understand how Scripture has always been in the church age, particularly uh, in the church age, of great importance to the believers. John chapter 5, Jesus speaking, he said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus said, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus himself, his scripture was what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus often quoted from them and drew from them. And in this text, he says that the Old Testament scriptures, that's which was written by men like Isaiah, who we've been studying the last couple of weeks, Men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Moses and others, they wrote the scriptures and they were talking and referencing me. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus said to a group of people, he said, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary 
that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Talking to these men on the road to Emmaus, he takes the scripture, the written word, Moses, through the prophets, and he says, that was pointing toward my coming and, and, and my life and my ministry as the Messiah. In Acts chapter 2, we have where the church is actually birthed. And in Acts chapter 2, we begin to see the foundation of this New Testament church. And what were they going to be about? What were they going to do? Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice their commitment to Scripture, to the teaching of the apostles. So this scripture, according to Paul, says that all scripture was breathed out or given to us by God. Well, what does that mean? I won't get into the weeds of the Greek language here this morning, but it comes from a couple of Greek words, one meaning God and one meaning spirit. Thus, the ESV uses this word God breathed. It came out from God. It originated with God himself. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God superintended this recording of Scripture. He never discounted the human writer's personality, vocabulary, style. You see that Paul writes very differently than Peter, and Peter writes different than John. So there is this allowance for their personality. But there was something unique about these men, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to write and to record what God had wanted for us as the church to know and understand. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1.21. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't, this is outside the realm of this message this morning. And if you have questions about what I'm going to say in a moment um, afterwards, I would love to talk to you about it. You may say, well, how did we end up with the 66 books that we call the Bible anyway? What, how did we land on these books? That's a long answer, and I'm not rejecting that question other than for sake of time. I can't deal with that here in this setting. But if that is something that raises a question for you, please, I urge you, I beg you, I would love to have the conversation with you understanding how we got the Bible and what it is and how we can understand it a little bit better. I remember during my my time in school, I guess I got school on on the brain this morning, um, I've mentioned Mrs. Shayevsky before. She watches online from time to time. She may be watching this morning. But uh, I took journalism with Ms. Shayevsky. She was such a great teacher, by the way, is I was an athlete in high school. I took like all the, you know, athletic stuff and took gym class as many times as humanly possible, that sort of thing. I bailed out of a gym class to take journalism because Mrs. Shayevsky taught it. And we were sitting in journalism one day And me and one of my friends got into this huge debate about the Bible. He said, oh, the Bible is just about a bunch of kings and it's fairy tales and it's myths and it's not true. Well, I was all of 17 years old and I knew I didn't believe that and I didn't quite fully grasp why I didn't believe that. But as I have thought through that and studied through that, that the uniqueness of Scripture, yes, it tells us about kings. It tells us about real people. It gives us accounts and events from their life to point us toward a much greater truth, which is a truth about who Christ is and who God is and that we are created by an almighty God. And God in his love has given to us this word. And and by the way, the author of this book, God himself, has the authority over his word and over us as we live it and as we understand it. So scripture is inspired. We are called to understand it, to respect it, to live by it, and to make sure that we are living in accordance with his word. So all scripture is inspired by God. Paul tells Timothy, in the midst of this culture, make sure that you are standing firm on its foundation. Well, We see the inspiration of Scripture, but we also want to notice this morning that all Scripture is also profitable. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. Scripture is profitable. Well, what does that word mean? Well, it simply means beneficial. 
there is something beneficial about Scripture. What is it profitable for? He says it is profitable for teaching, instruction, that which should be taught. It is here particularly talking about doctrine. It is talking about biblical precepts and understanding what is true. Now, notice Paul doesn't stop there. He says not only is it profitable for teaching, it is also profitable for reproof. Now, how many of you like to face a rebuke? How many of you like to face a reproof? This word, the Greek word, comes from the the root meaning conviction, to be tested. In other words, we don't judge based on what I think. We judge based on... It shows us where we are in error, where we have wandered away from the truth, where we have become misguided in our thinking. Not only is it for reproof, but it is also for correction. That it is for our purpose to be refined through Scripture that we are corrected, that our life and our character is molded in such a way that we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more like our Savior. And he says, not only for correction and for training. Training in what? In righteousness. It's curious to me. I, I try to read lots of books. I try to read broadly. I try to read all kinds of stuff just to be exposed to kind of what's out there and it's often interesting to me that books that claim to be christian that just never sort of get around to quoting scripture like ever or if they do i was one book in particular that i read a couple of years ago this writer had one verse of scripture that she liked a lot and she said it again and again and again and again the problem was she didn't quite be faithful to the context of it Yeah, that sounds great. It sounds Christian. But reality was, not only was there, by my count, one verse repeated multiple times. It was A, taken out of its context, and then B, misapplied. But it was Christian. And yet, Paul says that in order for us to to grow, in order for us to be corrected, in order for us to be refined, to become more and more like Christ. We don't need entertainment. We need God's Word. We need Scripture to come into our hearts and lives and to teach us the things that lead us to righteous living. By the way, this last part of this verse 16, this word training, has the idea of cultivating the soul, correcting mistakes, curbing your sinful passions that this instruction is in righteousness it is correcting our thinking our feeling our acting and this is so that we can live in such a way that we are living in obedience to righteousness i've been involved now in ministry with three separate christian schools and in the first christian school that i was involved in was actually down in Orlando, Florida, and I can remember two messages. Okay, you're talking 15 plus years ago, I was there. I remember two messages to this day. Only two. The first message, I actually don't remember, I should be fair, I don't remember what he said. I just remember what he said before the message started. We were sitting, well, they're all torn similar to this. I was sitting to my left, I was sitting beside him, I was in charge of the chapel service. And we're sitting there and the kids are singing and they're doing whatever. And he leans over and he says, hey, any idea what I should talk about today? The Bible would be really good. But if you're thinking about that now, we ought to just cancel chapel now. Because I don't remember what he said, but it was a bunch of ramble that just went on and on and on to fill the time. The second guy I remember he came in, and he was highly recommended. Somebody had recommended him. Now you've got to schedule this guy. He's great. And so he came in, and I'll tell you what, he captivated the kids. And within a few minutes, there was a girl next to me to my right. Her name was Gloria. I thought Gloria was going to be on the ground. She was laughing so hard. And that day, it was a buzz. I mean, it was like 
That guy was the greatest, the best chapel ever. The sermon was fantastic. He was great. And I listened. And I asked some of the kids, I said, let me ask you a question. What Bible verse was his text this morning? Huh. I don't know. What was it? I don't know either. Oh, he was funny, though. Pastor Jay, you got to admit, he was funny. You can watch that on Comedy Live or whatever. It's not a comedy show. And somehow our culture of Christianity has become convinced that a good speaker makes me laugh, he makes me cry, he makes me feel good, he scratches my itch, and yet Paul says... To, Peter, to Timothy, you know what you ought to do, Timothy, in this wicked, carnal world in which we live? You ought to preach Scripture. You know why? Because you can laugh and leave this room and not be changed one ounce. I could give you a lot of historical tidbits and tell you all kinds of cool things so you can win your Bible quiz. But if it's not Scripture preached to change your heart, we've accomplished nothing. We all should have stayed home this morning. It's not about tidbits. It's not about laughing. It's not about crying. It is about, am I being taught? Am I being instructed? Am I being corrected? Am I being rebuked? Am I being challenged? To this point in the sermon, we're probably 25, 30 minutes in. I probably haven't said one thing new to you today. But you know what? We all forget, don't we? And we all wander away from the purpose of Scripture and for the giving of Scripture. I was, I've been reading a ton of pastorally kind of books lately. And one of the pastors said he resigned his ministry and this woman came in because she had some things to get off her chest. I've been on the receiving end of those, those times. Those are always fun. And he said she sat down. She said, you know what? You gave us the gospel, the gospel, the Bible, the Bible. She said, he said she looked at me and she said, but we need something more. What do you need that's more than the infallible, perfect word of God? You know why we want more? Because we believe it's infallible. You might even believe it's inspired, but you don't believe it's sufficient. The scripture is not only inspired. It is not only infallible. It is not only inerrant in the original text. I can answer that question later if you would like. However, it is also sufficient. It doesn't mean we don't learn from other topics, from science and psychology. I'm married to a woman with a PhD in psychology, for goodness sakes. We understand that it helps us categorize humanity. But I'll tell you this about the psychology books I read. They're great at describing humanity. They stink at what telling you to do about it. Because scripture is sufficient or it isn't. So Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God. All of it. Even Leviticus? Yep, that book too. Even the weird parts of First and Second Chronicles? Like, why are all those names listed there? That's inspired by God? Yep, every word of it. It's there for a reason. You see, our job is to read it, to understand it, and to apply it to our own personal lives in such a way that it changes our hearts. And then finally, before we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper this morning, all Scripture is purposeful. Not only is it inspired, not only is it profitable, there's a purpose behind it. Notice what he says. The purpose of Scripture, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This first word means perfect. Now understand something. The scripture is very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. No one lives sinless. No one. Not a person in this room. The only person who has ever lived a sinless life was God in the flesh, the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. The only one. When Paul says to Timothy that the scripture is given to us so that we can be complete, that we can be perfect. Yes, we should strive for perfect Christ-likeness. The problem is this side of heaven, we will never achieve that. But we should be striving for completion, for maturity. 
That is why we at Grace are not going... I've been in ministries like this. You probably have. Man, there's people coming in the front door as fast as they're going out the back door. We want people rooted, understanding Scripture, learning Scripture, applying Scripture, and then taking it out and teaching others so that others can learn the truth as well. Not only is it to bring us to completion, but notice this, to equip you with every good work to make something useful of you. God does not give us Scripture for the purpose of accumulating knowledge so that we keep it to ourselves. I read one pastor this week, and he said, he says to his church that if you have been a Christian for longer than two years, you need to be discipling at least two people personally in your life. I'm not equipped to do that. Yeah, God says you are. You may not know every answer to every question. Guess what? I don't either. I got asked a question this morning that I said the infamous pastoral answer. I don't know. I have to get back to you. None of, that's the best answer. I love that answer. Deuteronomy 29, 29, buddy. The secret things belong to the Lord. I don't know, but I will find out if God's word says, gives me an explanation. But we understand that we are to then take this and teach others. See, the gospel is not something that we outgrow. The gospel is not something past tense. It's not something that we did. It's something that we live today and will live in the future. We come together as the body of Christ each week for multiple reasons. We come to worship. We come for instruction. We come for fellowship. We come for evangelism to a degree. The primary purpose of our worship is for the instruction of Christians, for believers. It doesn't mean that we don't tell you about Christ dying on the, sin, on the cross for your sins, of course. But we are to be instructed so that we go out and evangelize and tell others about the good news of Christ. You see, we don't want to be a group of people that comes for a Sunday show or performance. Our church is not to be a place that people come out of religious duty. It is supposed to be a local body of committed believers who regularly come together for the purposes I just described, who then go out into our community to evangelize and to serve people in our community. Our strategic plans, clever presentations, flashy programs may win a crowd, but they achieve what the world calls success— we learned from Isaiah 55 last week that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. They are not ours. His are greater than ours. And we are called to obey God's call, to take the good news of Christ to our, to our culture. As I said, our, our hope and prayer is week, each week is that people come together as the body of Christ and leave here saying, what a wonderful Savior. Truth is what our culture needs. Truth is what our nation needs. It doesn't need more entertainment. It doesn't need more pragmatism. I don't have time for this, but it doesn't need another list of do's and don'ts either. It doesn't need consumerism. It needs Christ. It needs the scripture, even when it's not popular. You may not know this. In Canada, as of yesterday, we need to pray for our brothers in Canada. In Canada yesterday, it went into a law that now Christianity, the idea of a man and woman, marriage being defined between a man and a woman, is now in Canada called a myth. And it is no longer allowed or acceptable to say that marriage is limited between a man and a woman. And if I understand it correctly, as this unfolds, that people could spend up to five years in prison for violating that. Folks, we have to understand. By the way, I saw a headline. I didn't read the article. I didn't have the, gut, I didn't have the stomach to do it. Is that science has now proven that external biological sex is actually not provable by science supposedly. Folks, we are to take scripture through love and in love, never berating people, never de 
diminishing people, never attacking people, never being ugly to people, but we are called to speak the truth when it comes to Scripture. And God's Word says marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not popular. And so many pastors today just don't get around to talking about Scripture. Sprinkle it in. Make people feel good. Just tell them what they want to hear. And that's why Paul says, I charge you in church, verse 4, in the presence of God and the, of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I ask you in closing, as we turn our attention a second to the Lord's Supper, whose voice is the most predominant in your life right now? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Oh, I could go on the manipulation trail and ask you how your Bible reading is doing. I don't mean it manipulatively, but are you in the Word? Do you study Scripture? Do you read scripture? Do you listen? Maybe you're like me. When I was young, I could hardly read. Maybe listening works better for you. Are you ingesting and digesting the word of God? We read, even as a pastor, I'm guilty of this at times. We read a lot of books about the Bible. You ought to actually read the Bible and understand it for what it says and what it does. I have this weird thing. You're probably learning more about me than you want to ever know. I wake up every morning with a song in my mind. This morning it was classical violin music. I never know what it's going to be. It's kind of fun. Consciousness comes back to my brain and I hear music. I will tell you this. If I wake up to a song that I heard in 1982 on the radio, or a song that I heard at the gym, or a song I heard at the whatever, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but it seems to me my heart's in the wrong place. If I wake up singing Great is Thy Faithfulness, singing songs of praise to God, that is the first sound that my brain sings into my mind each morning. I don't know, I can't prove it, but it tells me my heart is where it needs to be. Not perfect. It's a barometer. It's a test. What you take in is what comes out. And without a daily renewal of your mind, without daily renewal of Scripture, my dear friend, you're not prepared for the spiritual battle that's in front of you. We have to renew our minds each morning, each day, through the intake of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, What poor starvelings some saints are who live without the diligent use of the Word of God see, it's God's word that changes hearts. It's God's word that produces godly fruit. And for us as believers, our job is to not only be making disciples, but maturing ourselves so that we can then help mature others. One of the beautiful pictures that the New Testament gives us of kind of the scriptures in motion and, and visual is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is given to us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that it is given, actually Jesus said it at the Last Supper when he instituted uh, this ordinance, when he said that we do this in remembrance of Christ. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask Scott or Wes or someone to come and play a song softly on the piano. And while he is playing, I want you to just take these couple of moments to think through in your own heart, in your own life, making sure, number one, that there has been a time in, in your heart, in your, in your life, that you have repented of your sin and believed in Christ for salvation. Number two, if you're here as a believer and there is something that you need to repent of, something that you need to get right between another brother or sister in this room or between you and the Lord alone, do that while Scott is playing. And in just a moment, when he is finished, we will 
Do as Jesus said, to observe his table as we remember him together. Scott. this ordinance that has been left for us by Christ to observe as a church. Paul says that we, in doing this, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That today when we talk about this picture, we are reminded of the sacrifice of Christ. We proclaim his death, but also his resurrection. And even in scripture, we find descriptions of the coming Messiah of what he would do and who he would be and what he would accomplish. And Isaiah 53, again, one of the Old Testament prophets writing under the inspiration of God. Isaiah said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as some from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. This next verse is so essential. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way, all of us sinful before God. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John the Baptist said it this way. By the way, talk about a non-attractional guy. He lived kind of a crazy life. And yet he was the forerunner to Jesus himself. And John said it this way, when he saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That when we observe the Lord's Supper, we are observing the sacrifice that Christ made for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And maybe for you today, as someone has not maybe put your faith in Christ, you don't even know what that means yet, I, I urge you to understand that we right now, by observing this this ordinance that we are proclaiming the Lord's death to you, that he died for you because of your sin and mine, like a lamb, slaughtered, he did it for you and for me. For the Christian, this is a reminder of great hope. It's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. And so as we remember this morning, I read for you once again, the Apostle Paul, as he instructs us on observing the Lord's Supper, beginning first with the bread, he says, For I received from the Lord which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he broke it and given thanks, he said, This is my body, representative of my body, which is for you. Do this, eat this in remembrance of me. The image of Christ's broken body on the cross isn't the complete picture. Paul goes on in verse 25 when he says, In the same way, he, being Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant or the new testament. New Testament believers living under the new covenant, not under 
the Old Covenant found in the pages of the Old Testament, that we are under the New Covenant. He says, this New Covenant is in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it, and do so in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you today for the opportunity to take a moment and to remember your sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. God, it's all about Scripture. We do our best to understand it. We are, in, we are certainly not infallible. We are imperfect people. Guide our hearts, Lord, and our, and our minds to come to the truth that would change our hearts and change our lives, that we would become more and more like Christ. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to share this text today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On your way out today, let me just remind you of a, of a couple, of, um, couple of departing uh, things. First of all, we will sing a song in closing, as we always do at the Lord's Supper. If you're visiting today, you're a guest, I will hang here at the front, and I would like to meet you personally, just take some time to uh, greet you and uh, get to know you a little bit before you leave today. Uh, after the Lord's Supper each week, we do, or each month rather, we do receive a benevolence offering. The offering plates are in the back, straight in front of me. And that offering is for benevolence. It doesn't go to help our costs here at the ministry, the, the, the um, needs of the ministry at all, the financial needs of the ministry. This goes directly toward those who are in need. And along those lines, um, help us out by bringing some more um, items for the gift bags, the blessing bags that we've been giving out. And you can help us with that at some point. That would be a blessing to you. So Pastor West, come and close us today. Let's stand and let's reprise that first verse and chorus from Build My, Build My Life. Uh, we'll sing that first verse and then go right into the chorus. Let's sing it together. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever breathe. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Going right into the chorus. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a blessed week.